Psalm 90. Our scripture reading is going to be this particular psalm, which is titled the Psalm of Moses, which makes it perhaps the, the oldest of all the psalms that we find in the Psalter uh, in the middle of the Bible. Um, but even though it's the oldest of all the psalms, it has words that are as contemporary and applicatory to our lives today as they were during the time that Moses first wrote them. So Psalm 90, verses 1 through 17, reading from the English Standard Version translation, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. For we are brought to end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? So, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we would pray for your Holy Spirit to be the one guiding us, directing our hearts to understand your truth, and seeing how your word feeds us in spiritual matters, drawing us closer to you, that we may live the lives that please you. We ask for much grace this morning. Be so kind to give us much grace. And do so much in our lives, even beyond what we can ask or imagine, that your Son Jesus will be glorified. In his name, amen. Now, this morning we, we take up Psalm 90. And I'm well aware that our good friend, Dr. Jared Hurd, has made the Psalms his special province of preaching when he fills the pulpit. Now, he's preached all the way up through Psalm 10 as his main sermon series when he visits. By my estimates, based upon the average number of times that Dr. Hurd preaches among us, 
He will be scheduled to preach upon Psalm 90 on the 26th of May in the year 2030. So that's plenty of time will elapse between my preaching of Psalm 90 today and where, when you will hear it expounded again from this pulpit. So I think it's appropriate. I, I think I can safely say you won't remember anything I have said probably by the time you hear him preach upon this passage. Time. A long time before Jared would be preaching on this passage. But time is, in fact, one of the central themes of this psalm. The key verse in this psalm is verse 12. It's concerned with time. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. It's the teaching of verse 12 as the key verse in this passage that I want us to think about and to develop this morning. So here we are beginning a new year. Uh, the earth has made its orbital circuit through 365 days around the sun again. This repetitive pattern has affected all cultures throughout all of history so that marking the new year is a habitual pattern of virtually every culture that's ever existed in the history of man. And most often, the, the marking of a new year corresponds with some manner of personal evaluation, some manner of reflection over how we have lived during the previous year. So often, the question that underlies all of the resolutions we might make is this, how should I live? How should I live my life? And as Christians, how should I live my life so that I can best glorify God? Now the answer is going to be found in a succinct form in verse 12. Uh, God teaches us, Moses asks God to teach us to number our days so that we can get or gain a heart of wisdom. But Moses writes this verse in a particular context, which I want to first note and summarize. Verses 1 through 11, Moses there is describing how it is between God, the eternal God, and all of mankind ever since the sin and failure of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The eternal God created Adam as the first man, the very head of the human race. But we have lived in a world since the time of Adam that has been cursed because of Adam's sin. The whole world is under God's wrath and curse so that from dust we come and to dust we shall return. Death reigns over every human being. Not only because of Adam's sin, but also because we commit our own iniquities in the plain sight of God. Even when we think what we're doing is secret sin, it takes place in the light of God's presence. And death comes into this world. Death comes to all men as part of his wrath and curse. So Moses tells us that instead of having immortality and eternal life in this world that God has made, 
We are given but a few years, 70 or 80. And in their very nature, these few years are filled with toil and trouble. And even these troubled years seem to fly by so quickly, like the grass that sprouts after the beginning of the day, and by evening it withers and fades. And so the question that this description is asking us, the question that's implicit in Moses' description can be stated this way. Given that this is the situation of the world over which God's wrath reigns, and given that the time we have in this world is so very limited compared to the days of an everlasting God, how should we, we who belong to God, live out our lives? How should we spend our precious, limited time? And the response to that question, the message which Moses gives us here, can be stated this way. Recognizing that the world exists under the wrath and curse of God, it is our calling as believers to measure the value of our days according to the wisdom that honors and glorifies God. Hear that again. In light of what Moses tells us here, we recognize that this world exists under the wrath and curse of God. But we're believers. And therefore, our calling in this context is to measure the significance, the importance, the value of our time here according to a wisdom that will honor and glorify God. Now, since it is the beginning of a new year, that calling then involves three resolutions that we should make. Three interconnected resolutions. First of which is this. We must measure our time according to eternity. We must measure our time in the light of eternity. Secondly, we must pursue this objective to aim at nothing less in our lives than to fear the Lord. To aim at nothing less than to fear the Lord. And then thirdly, we must at all times seek the Lord. Those three interconnected resolutions is the message that Moses gives us in the context of living in a world that's governed by God's wrath and curse. What does it mean to number our days so that we may get wisdom? To measure our lives in light of eternity. To have as the objective that we would fear the Lord. And that to realize that every day we must be seeking Him. So this first resolution. We must measure our lives in light of eternity. Moses isn't calling for us to do some kind of actuarial work of calculating how much longer we have to live. How, much, how likely is it that we're going to reach the age of 70 or the age of 80? Now, we think about those kinds of things. I mentioned to John Mitchell this morning, I said, you know, I think of myself as living in the last quarter of my life. This is the fourth quarter, you know. This is not the first quarter. It's not halftime. I'm in the last quarter. Does that affect how I think about my life? It must, it does, it should. But 
it's not like that. That's not really the point of what Moses is saying here, though it might be an inference that we could draw from it. Moses' point is this, that numbering our days is about measuring their importance and significance in light of God's existence. And in light of the reality that this world is under God's wrath and curse. It is God who sets the exact limits of our time in this world. It is God who sets the days and the very day at which our physical life will return to dust once again. Our times are in his hands. So Moses tells us to measure our time as taught by God. Teach us, he says, to number our days. There are a multitude of worldly philosophies by which we might reckon the meaning and significance of our time in this world. But do you really want to rely upon the wisdom of human beings to tell us how to use time? Uh, Think about the reaction of the old Indian when he was first told about daylight saving time. Uh, This is what he said. Only a white man would believe that you could cut a foot off of the top of the blanket and sew it to the bottom of the blanket and wind up with a longer blanket. (laughs) Human wisdom cannot give us the importance or significance of our time in this life. So Moses points to the necessity of God teaching us how to measure our time properly. And to do so, we must measure it against the reality of eternity. There is no other standard. God is the everlasting God. God has been our dwelling place in all generations, Moses says. We must measure our time in light of the God for whom a thousand earthly days pass as quickly as our yesterday has passed. And that makes us face this question. What is it then about our lives, your life, my life, that could ever give our lives eternal significance? As a Christian, we have the biblical truth that God has given us in in his word. And God's revelation has told us how everything of this world Everything of the history from creation to consummation, everything is going to be summed up in God's Son, Jesus Christ, to bring about the purpose of the glory of Christ. And in that regard, you and I must measure our time in this world by what God has declared to us. And Paul states it in Ephesians 2.10. You, believer, saved by the blood of Christ, having placed your faith and trust in Him, you are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus into an inseparable union with your Savior, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God Himself has prepared in advance that you would walk. In them. It's embracing that truth. It's embracing what God says about us 
in that passage. That's what it's going to mean to number our days, the significance of our days, the proper measurement of our days according to what God has declared to us. To measure your life in light of eternity is to reckon that you are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, so that in this world, in this life, you may do his good works, which he has prepared in advance for you to walk in them. And the second resolution, and it follows upon the first, is we must hold to this objective, to aim, to aim at nothing less than the fear of the Lord. This is what a heart of wisdom is all about. Uh, we know this from what Moses has said. It is the climax of what he has to say in that first section in verse 11. Moses says in that verse, verse 11, who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? As Spurgeon has noted, Moses lived in the midst of daily funerals. Remember the context. This generation of Israelites that Moses wrote this psalm to, that whole generation, delivered out of Egypt by the sovereign power of God, that generation was the generation that faltered and failed and rebelled against God because of unbelief. That is the generation that perished in the wilderness. And there were millions who came out of Egypt and there were millions who died over the 40-year period of time. Only the children of that generation saw the promised land. As Spurgeon has further noted, Moses saw men dying all around him. And that visual spectacle was overwhelming. And his great concern as a man of God was whether the sons of Israel were gaining hearts of wisdom, whether they were learning what it means to fear the Lord. Now, it's a biblical truth that a heart of wisdom has a proper fear of the Lord. Solomon describes this in Proverbs chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. He says, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your hearts to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Now, the center of everything that Solomon is saying here is that true wisdom and true knowledge of God involves this matter of fearing the Lord. Now, there are those who want to limit the meaning of fearing the Lord to nothing more than the deepest respect or the, the deepest kind of awe towards God. Certainly, it means all of that, but it means much more. We know this because Jesus taught us that to fear God is something much more than simply the deepest respect and awe. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples 
as he's training them for what it's going to be like in the ministry that they're going to face in the next generation. Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 33. Listen to what Jesus says to the twelve. So have no fear of them, meaning the fear of man. Now, that doesn't mean respect. And that doesn't mean awe. It means have no fear of the terrible things they might be able to do to you. Do not be afraid of men, Jesus says. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the rooftops. Verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body and hell. Jesus is saying, fear the God. Fear the sovereign. Fear the king of the universe who has the power and authority to kill or destroy both soul and body and hell. And then he goes on to say, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. <coughs> then he goes on to say, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now, listen to what Jesus is saying about the fear of the Lord. Jesus is saying that we need to fear God. Jesus' own disciples were going to face the possibility of death from human enemies, often during their lifetime. All of the twelve counting Paul as one of the twelve, all of them were martyred except for the Apostle John. They had ample temptation time and time again to fear men, to fear what their human enemies could do to them. But Jesus told them, it wasn't men that you must fear. You must fear God alone. His point was this, you ought to fear God so much that you will not fear your human enemies even when they are about to put you to death. Because here is the reality of what Jesus was teaching. To deny Christ, to deny Christ out of fear of men, will mean you've not yet learned to fear God. If we do not fear God, we do not have wisdom. If we do not have wisdom, we do not have the knowledge of God. And if we do not have the knowledge of God, then we are still lost human beings. We are still in our sins and we are not yet saved. Now I know that to American Christians uh, this sounds strict, this sounds hard, this sounds like legalism, this doesn't sound like grace, this doesn't sound like the gospel. But every month I receive the Voice of the Martyrs newsletter. Every month I am reading stories about how our brothers and sisters in Christ are being persecuted, 
kidnapped, tortured, and put to death. They face murderous human beings again and again and again. And again and again they are told to deny Jesus, renounce the faith, this will stop. You don't have to be tortured. You don't have to have your children taken away from you. You don't have to have your husband executed. All you have to do is stop confessing Jesus, renounce him, and none of this will continue. Again and again and again, this is what they are told. And yet, Jesus said, you are to fear God more than this persecution. You are to fear God more than those who can kill the body only. You and I can hardly fathom what this is like to fear God in this way. To fear God far more than we would fear men. But we have thousands and thousands of brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world who are living this way every single day. They are facing the worst sorts of human evil and they are fearing God rather than fearing men. But it's also a comfort to know that the God who promised, that God has promised to those who face such fear of men, who know they must fear God more, that there's a special provision of his presence. Because earlier in that same passage, in Matthew 10, Jesus promised his disciples this. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged away before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and the children will rise up against their parents and put them to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. God expects us to fear him more than we fear what human beings can do to us. But he also promises that his Holy Spirit will be with us in those times. And so I want to read to you from the most recent issue of the Voice of the Martyrs. It's a story about a woman who found God's promise to be true. Her name is Shawnee, Middle East, Shawnee's husband was the leader of a house church until one day when he simply disappeared. For three months, Shawnee had no idea where he was. The authorities had taken him, had filed no charges against him, and he wasn't allowed to see a lawyer or his family. In fact, the authorities wouldn't even admit that they were hiding him and holding him. Shawnee was left alone, worrying about her husband and about herself. She knew her husband was strong, and that his faith would endure even if he were tortured. 
He would never give up the names of other Christians or details about their secret gospel work. But Shawnee was afraid that she wasn't that strong. Dear God, she prayed one night, please don't allow them to find me. I can't handle torture. I cannot handle a jail cell. You said you won't give us more than we can handle, so please make them not come and arrest me. I'm not strong like my husband. I can't handle torture. If they torture me, I'll probably give up the names of every single Christian. I might even deny my faith completely. She prayed that prayer, and she went to sleep. Shawna was awakened at 6 a.m. the next door by someone banging on her door. When she looked out the window, she saw two police cars in front of her home. They saw her looking out the window and yelled, Are you going to come down here, or do you want us to come up and get you? Wait, she yelled back, I'll come down. But as Shawnee was getting ready to open the door for the police, she was fighting with God. God, I told you that I can't handle arrest and torture, she prayed. And this is what happens? Whatever happens now, God, it's your fault. (laughs) The police took Shawnee to the local jail, which was filthy and smelled like a sewer. She had grown up in a wealthy family, had never been in a place like this. I have to sleep there, she exclaimed. In the middle of the night, the guards pulled her out of her cell and took her to an interrogation room. The interrogator interrogator across the table from her looked very angry. Why did you evangelize, he demanded. Why do you talk about Jesus to Muslims? What do you want from these people, you and your husband? Don't you know this is illegal here? You were not permitted to evangelize. The only thing she could think to say was, Dear God, Lord. And then she suddenly felt the Lord's presence. Shawnee looked up at the interrogator. You know what, she said? I have a right to evangelize. And I'm happy that I'm evangelizing. We're supposed to evangelize. This is a commandment from Jesus Christ. Everyone needs to hear this good news. You need to hear this good news. God sent me here to tell you about Jesus. You are a poor man. I feel bad for you. You don't have peace. You don't have joy. You don't have hope. You don't even know why you are alive. The only way to the truth is Jesus Christ. You are an interrogator. But one day you're going to stand before the ultimate judge, Jesus Christ, and he is going to examine you. Without him, there is no hope for you. And Jesus is going to ask you, why did you do this to my servants? The interrogator was shocked by her bold words. Okay, I see, he replied. I know exactly who you are now. Now your punishment has just increased. You are really going to get it now. Go back to your cell. I'll deal with you tomorrow. As Shawnee was escorted back to her filthy filthy cell, she prayed, Oh Lord, what did I do? How could I have been so stupid? Why did I say all that stuff? After further thought, she decided she would apologize to the interrogator and take it all back. She decided she would say whatever he wanted her to say. The following night, the guards again dragged her out of her cell and into the interrogation room. Despite her plan, she again felt the Holy Spirit's guidance and began to share the gospel with the interrogator. The third night, it happened again. Each night, Shawnee entered the interrogation room with the intent 
of apologizing to the interrogator, and each night she instead boldly proclaimed the gospel. After the third interrogation, Shani went back to her cell, hoping to give her mind a rest and to fall asleep, despite the stench. She hadn't slept since her arrest, and she was exhausted. In the middle of the night, however, she heard a knock at her cell door. To her surprise, it wasn't a guard. It was the interrogator. Let me come in, he said. Shawnee was terrified. Was he coming to beat her or even to kill her because of her disrespect toward him? Don't worry, the interrogator said calmly. I will not harm you. I want to ask you a favor. Would you pray for me tonight? The interrogator entered Shawnee's cell with tears in his eyes. Did you know that you are an angel of God, he asked. Did you know that God sent you here at this particular time in my life? The past three days I've been going through hell. How did you know my life is so crazy, so messed up? I tried everything in my religion that I could to be happy. I learned today that only the Savior, the only Savior is Jesus Christ. When you were talking in the interrogation room, that wasn't really you. I saw myself in God's presence. Please help me to be saved. So the interrogator stayed in Shawnee's jail cell for three hours. Before he left, he placed his trust in Christ. He then ordered the release of both Shawnee and her husband on the secret condition that they agreed to meet privately to disciple him. And he even gave them advice on how to evangelize more safely. Shawnee told God that she couldn't handle arrest, that she would probably give up the names of every Christian she knew if tortured. She might even deny her faith. Yet three times, this seemingly fearful woman boldly shared the gospel with her interrogator and everyone else in the room. A frightened woman who thought she might deny her faith ended up leading an enemy of the gospel into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus requires of us that we fear God more than we fear men. But Jesus also promised us that what God requires of us, God will do in and through us. God will supply the grace Shawnee's story testifies to the faithfulness of God to his own promise. So when we resolve to fear nothing but to fear the Lord, we can trust that God, by his grace, will enable us to do so. Why? Because you and I are God's workmanship. Our third resolution. In light of these first two, it must be this. We must, therefore, seek the Lord at all times. We learn this from verses 13 through 17. And, and it's, it's the way in which Moses prayed. He was seeking the Lord. Now, seeking the Lord, as we see it from this psalm, what Moses says, or seeking the Lord is when we strongly petition him for the saving and sustaining and persevering grace that we need to live in this world that is under his wrath and curse. We see this in Moses' prayer. We see this 
in each of these verses a very, very strong petition. Verse 13, Moses prays, return, Lord, have pity upon us. And then he says, how long? And the how long is that strong emotional appeal. How long, God, we need you now. We need the grace of your sustaining presence now. How long, Lord, before you return to us? We need you now. And that is the kind of prayer we need to pray. It is right that we pray prayers of desperation. You and I need to be desperate for the grace of God. You and I need to want the grace of God, the presence of God, more than anything else. And Moses is saying, in light of this world that we live in, God, please return to us. Have compassion and pity upon us. How long do we have to wait? God is pleased to see that your heart cries out to Him for Him more than for anything else. We see in verse 14 that Moses teaches us to pray this. God, satisfy us every morning with your steadfast love. You and I have hearts that seek to be satisfied by so many things. But if we are measuring our lives in light of eternity, then we need to be praying, God, make my deepest desires be satisfied with the knowledge and experience of your steadfast love. That word steadfast love, the Hebrew word hesed, has a consistent reference to God's covenant and what God has covenantally done as he announced his covenant to Abraham. I will be your God. I will be with you. I will be present with you. God's covenantal love, that's what we need to be satisfied with. And that covenant love finds its preeminence in the life and death and work of Jesus Christ. To be satisfied each day in God's covenant love is to be satisfied in Jesus. To be satisfied in what Jesus has done for us. To be satisfied that Christ is in us and we are in Him. To be satisfied that Jesus is the heart's greatest need the heart's deepest delight. And then the last part of verse 14 and verse 15, for God to grant us gladness and joy all the days of our lives. Look at those verses. Moses says, Lord, please make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. We have the privilege of saying to God, we live in a world that is toil and trouble. But grant to us as your children at least some kind of, some kind of balance here so that we can actually find ourselves rejoicing and be glad in you at least to balance out the days in which we suffer and find ourselves afflicted. Give us such a sense of life and delight in your steadfast love that we can say at the end of it all, we had as many days in which we were able to delight in the goodness and kindness and the blessings of the Lord as we ever did the days of toil and affliction. What Moses prayed, God is pleased to give to those who deeply seek this from him. 
And then the last couple of verses, 16 and 17, there is the prayer that that is really the fulfillment of what Moses is praying, and it is directly linked back to Ephesians 2.10. Listen, verse 16. The prayer is for God to show his work and his power to his servants. That is for us to see the preeminent power and work of God to be in Jesus Christ. God demonstrating his own love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. To know that Christ, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is in Christ that we see the fullness of God's work and power toward us who believe. It is in Christ. We are this work of God. In Christ, we are God's workmanship. We are the fullness of God's work and power toward his servants. It is God's work for us. It is God's work in us that Moses is ultimately referring to. God, show us your power and your work. God, we see your power and work in Christ. God, we see your power and work force on the cross. We see your power and work in us as your workmanship. In the last verse, the prayer, God, lay your favor upon us. Establish the work of our hands. Yea, establish the work of our hands. A double emphasis. And the work of our hands are those works which God has prepared in advance for those who are his workmanship, that we should walk in them. And we need to be seeking God then at all times to always be working in us and in those works that we would do. God, establish this work. Establish what you've called us to do in and through us. Apart from Jesus, Father, we can do nothing. So, a new year. We are reminded by the word of God that this world exists under the wrath and curse of God. But the eternal God is our dwelling place. Therefore, we have a calling to measure our days against eternity. And we have an objective in that calling to seek nothing less than to fear the Lord. And to do this, we must seek him at all times, knowing that through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, we are God's workmanship, created in his Son unto good works, which God prepared in advance that we should walk in them. Let us pray. Father, what is our prayer? It is the prayer of Moses. Teach us to number our days that we may gain hearts of wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.